Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next. rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Thank you so much for spending the hour with me. You've got a lot of ground to cover, and I hope by the time the hour's over, you've been encouraged, edified, equipped, enlightened, and nudged right back out into the marketplace of ideas. Where are we going to start? Well, where we have started oh so many times since October 7th, and that is with Israel. I'm going to turn once again to my friends at CBN News, where Julie Stahl and Chris Mitchell have been doing superb jobs of encapsulating the last 24 hours of each day of this continuing war against Israel. Here's the report for today. Today, families began to bury the soldiers who died in Gaza. The brother of Lieutenant Hadar Kaplik said goodbye. My brother, I love you. You are my world. I will take care of mom, dad, and the sisters. I will be strong for you, and we will meet in the future. On Tuesday, the IDF chief of staff visited the site where the soldiers died. Hamas terrorists fired RPGs at the building where the IDF was setting explosives. We, as always, will investigate the incident in depth and learn the lessons while fighting so that such an incident will not happen again. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu mourned along with the nation and vowed to keep fighting. We bow our heads to the memory of our fallen And yet we do not for a moment stop striving for an irreplaceable goal, the achievement of total victory. Together we will fight, and God willing, together 
we will win. Now, more than 100 days after October 7th, the plight of the hostages remains on the hearts and minds of Israelis. One of the freed hostages described life under Hamas captivity. I was there for 51 days. There wasn't a minute that we didn't go through something, abuse, in all forms. And they are still there, surviving, barely. Aviva Siegel described the captives as treated like puppets on a string. I want to tell you that the terrorists bring inappropriate clothes, dolls' clothes, and they turned these girls into their dolls, puppets on a string. You can do whatever you want with them, whenever you want. And it's still unbelievable that they are still there. National security spokesman John Kirby described the current negotiations to free the hostages as sober and serious. Israeli government spokesman Ilan Levy told CBN News why he wears what he calls hostage dog tags. You use it as an opportunity to talk about the 253 men, women and children who were abducted from their beds on October 7th, dragged into the Hamas terror dungeons, some with life-changing injuries, limbs blown off, gunshot wounds to the hands, a third of whom have chronic conditions, who have been held incommunicado without access to the Red Cross. Levi says the clock is ticking. Time is running out for them. Time has already run out for those who were executed. And we want all friends, allies and people and nations of conscience around the world to demand their immediate and unconditional release. And until then, to demand that the Red Cross get access to the hostages so it can give them the medical treatment that they desperately need so they can escape from that hellhole alive and safe. Mm. Well, let me point out that one of Israel's concern was having a fight on multiple borders, and that seems to be exactly the direction this is going in. It isn't just Gaza, it's Hezbollah in the north. And then, of course, we're watching Iran-backed Houthis in Yemen. Now, there have been U.S. airstrikes targeting these Houthis in Yemen. Here's a report from ABC News. Overnight, U.S. Central Command announcing another strike in Yemen, targeting two Houthi anti-ship missiles posing an imminent threat. This is the 10th military airstrike in the region. A separate operation Tuesday targeted three sites in Iraq, including a weapons storage facility housing armed drones and missiles. The strikes in direct retaliation for attacks on American troops over the weekend including at the Al-Assad airbase where four U.S. personnel suffered traumatic brain injuries. And in the Red Sea, the U.S. also trading fire with the Iran-backed Houthis. Iran's foreign minister praising the Yemeni rebels' attacks on commercial vessels and targeting of U.S. Navy ships. He called them brave, but denying evidence his country is supplying the weapons. The Pentagon sent out pictures of those weapons showing they were from Iran. It's a show they put on TV, he claims. American officials have sent multiple private messages to Iran warning against escalation. Is there a red line for Iran where you would enter a war with the U.S.? The minister saying the danger of a wider war has increased and that the threat will persist as long as the U.S. stands behind Israel. 
Well, it makes you nervous when you realize that in many respects, this is very much a proxy war with Iran. Israel, I think, has known that since October 7th. But more and more Americans are becoming cognizant of the fact that, again, the puppet master behind so much of this upheaval in the Middle East is Iran. Breaking news out of the Buckeye State in Ohio. In a bizarre move, Governor DeWine vetoed Bill HB 68, the Enact Ohio Saving Adolescents from Experimentation Act, or the SAFE Act, it was known, And he vetoed it between Christmas and New Year's on the 29th of December after it had passed both houses by veto-proof majorities. Now, this bill will bar physicians from performing gender reassignment surgery on a minor and for prescribing cross-sex hormones or drugs to block puberty for the purpose of gender transition. When the governor tried to defend this in a very kind of cryptic press conference, he framed his veto as an effort to bring consensus on a divisive issue and to avoid having the government decide what medical decisions are best for children. I think I've heard that same language espoused by the pro-abortion community that say it should be between a woman and her doctor. The best interests of the child have always been a standard that states and the federal government have upheld, but apparently that's gone away because of the howling winds of cultural change. Well, I'm happy to report today that the Ohio Senate overrid, overrode, rather, I'll get my English right, overrode Governor DeWine's veto of House Bill 68, which will protect minors from this experimentation. The override passed today in the Senate by a vote of 24 to 8, after passing the House of Representatives on January 10th by a vote of 65 to 28. Now this will take effect in 90 days, and the most vulnerable in the state of Ohio will be protected. Right under the Capitol Dome in Madison, Wisconsin, the capital of the state of Wisconsin, there's a saying that reflects the whole idea of representative government, and it's thus. The will of the people is the law of the land. The people spoke vis-a-vis their legislature in both the House and the Senate when they passed HB 68 originally. One person, the governor, decided he would be the voice for the people, and he learned an important lesson about democracy. Back after this. Heaven, hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But do you understand what you believe? That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith as this month's truth tool. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. If you listen to this program with any regularity, you know that we love to spend time with Elaine Donnelly. Elaine is the founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness. It's an absolutely fabulous organization. It was one of the first and most important lessons I learned when I came to Washington, D.C. Because everywhere you go, you'll see men and women in uniform, obviously represented all over the streets of the nation's capital. And it makes you very proud and very thankful to be an American. So who would have thought that our own military would be under attack so very often by our own government? And it was Elaine, and you must give credit where credit is due, who taught me that generally the military culture has been historically conservative. And when change agents and woke people think that they want to change the culture at large, they very often like to begin with the military, because if you can change the military, that somehow it serves as a Petri dish for being able to save the culture at large. Well, they didn't count on people like Elaine and the work of the Center for Military Readiness, who winsomely and articulately argue in defense of our men and women in uniform because they understand that national security and a strong defense are paramount for a democracy. And it is, by the way, if you want to look it up, one of the primary reasons biblically why we have governments to keep 
people safe. By the way, she founded the Center for Military Readiness back in 1993. And I was very much looking forward to the first release of some of the notes that she would send out for this year because we had some unfinished business the last time we talked. And that was what in the world happened to the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, the CMR, the Center for Military Readiness, has introduced, had introduced multiple proposals that should be folded into NDAA that were common sense, they were compassionate, they were practical, and they served our military well. But there were lots of questions left hanging. So, Elaine, I am thrilled that you're here because if I can squeeze it in, I want to look back over the work that you've done in 2023, but I would love to get an update on what happened in conference committee behind closed doors as they're working through the NDAA. So welcome and share what you can. Thank you, Janet. It's always such a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you for the kind introduction. And yes, last year, I was on your show several times, Mm -hmm. and we tracked what the House members did. Now, we, we gave a challenge to Congress. It was very simple. Support this, oppose that, uh, revise this. And they came back with a really nice collection of good ideas, uh, both the House and the Senate. And it looked for a while that they were, well, they were approved, most of them on the House side. Uh, The Senate, not so many. uh, But there were a few good items in the Senate bill. And then they went into conference committee starting in the fall. Well, the administration and the Democratic leaders, I'm told, behind the closed doors really through their weight around. Uh, the administration had a hit list, this section, that section, uh, ones that we highlighted and knew were the best sections. Uh, they, they knew exactly what they wanted to hit. And unfortunately, most of them were indeed stripped out. Now, there were a few good ones, like I'll, I'll mention parents' rights, for instance. Elise Stefanik had some good legislation. She sponsored it successfully last year. It was bipartisan to strengthen parents' rights in their children's education in the schools that, um, uh, that are attended by military children of, of military parents, okay? And it, it gives them more right to talk to teachers, to see the curriculum, and things like that. Also, medical privacy, medical matters regarding their children. But then even that measure, there was something peculiar in there that I noticed. The part about seeing the books and library offerings doesn't take effect for two years. Hmm. So where did that come from? Well, this is how a conference committee works. Uh, sausage making is an apt metaphor uh, <laughs> because things come in and they get thrown in or taken out. You don't know what's happening. Um, and sometimes the primary sponsors of legislation, they're the last ones to find out what happened in conference committee. This was one of those times. The measure to end the abortion travel subsidies uh, that were instituted by the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, unilaterally, without any authorization in Congress. We had a, a very strong protest from Senator Tuberville of Alabama, and unfortunately, he held out as, as long as he could. But they finally got him in such a corner, he had to give in, and a lot of promotions went through, uh, as they otherwise would have, were it not for his protest, which he had every right to mm-hmm. uh, to, to stand. This is part of Senate rules. He didn't want to see the Senate rules corrupted because of his stand. Um, now, there was legislation to end that abortion travel subsidy across state lines, but it did not get through the conference committee. Uh, there was one having to do with transgenders and the use of defense funds for exceptional family programs, okay, military family program, EFMP, 
for kids who have autism or they need special medical treatments, there are allowances for their parents. So there were some news reports that this EFMP funds were being used for transgender treatments and transitioning. Sometimes uh, you don't know exactly what's going on, whether parents were informed or not. In some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Don't know for sure. Um, but there was an amendment that would have stopped that, and that also was stripped out. Hmm. Uh, funding for trans- irreversible transgender surgeries, that was taken out. Um, these kinds of things are harmful, but we were hoping because both the House and Senate had amendments having to do with meritocracy in the military, saying that this is the, the paramount um, factor in deciding who gets admitted, who gets promoted, uh, assignments, everything, should be based on merit and individual accomplishment. Both the House and Senate, there was about five or six different measures. And the one there was one on the Senate side that looked pretty good. But guess what? They took one word out of this sentence, and I'll just read this very short sentence. It says, um, uh, a mili- let's see, military merit requirement, a military accession or promotion in the DOD shall be based on individual merit and demonstrated performance. Well, that's, that's a step in the right direction, but they took out the word exclusively. Mm. So that, that allows the Pentagon to say, oh, yeah, we're all for merit, but we have to have a certain percentage of people of this race or that race, and they always deny their quotas. But that is, in essence, what they are doing, and they want to continue that, even though the Supreme Court said that racial discrimination is wrong in higher education. The DOD is on the wrong side of that argument. And, and regardless of what the court says, they're plowing ahead. Oh, so many questions to ask you, Elaine. Elaine Donnelly is with us, the founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness. By the way, I have links to the work that she does so that you can stay apprised of our men and women in uniform. Use the voice that God has given you both in prayer and in action. Back after this. We're visiting with Elaine Donnelly, founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness. And so much work was done last year to try to better this major funding package for our military, known as the NDAA. It's always contentious, but for some reason it seemed even more so this year. It's the National Defense Authorization Act. And so lots of wonderful ideas were put forth through the suggestion of the center, and many of them were taken up. But by the time the differences in the two houses were hammered out, and that's done in something called conference committee, it's done behind closed doors, and Elaine has been explaining how one word here or an omission here is just enough to completely gut some of these commonsensical and practical proposals. And by the way, legal proposals, as we were just talking about uh, a Supreme Court ruling. So that really, in the same area of meritocracy, which is so important, Uh, I've grown weary, as I think a lot of Americans have, of knowing that there are wars and rumors of wars all over our planet. Before you joined us, we were talking about the U.S. strikes against the Houthis in Yemen. So we need to have a strong military defense. Not quite sure how diversity, equity and inclusion works in all of that. So where is all of that now in NDAA? Well, the diversity and equity and inclusion, DEI, there were several proposals and some of them were pretty good. Um, the um, one of them was to eliminate the chief diversity officer in the Pentagon. This this uh, is somebody, and it's not just in the Pentagon. All the branches of service and the service academies they have these CDOs, as they're called. They're like political officers, 
and they decide who gets promoted, who doesn't get promoted, uh, and they promote the um, DEI philosophy and quotas and CRT and all the rest. Well, there was a straightforward amendment to get rid of these CDOs, um, and it did not uh, pass. It was the uh, House receded to the Senate. In fact, the House receded to the Senate way too many times. Mm. 817 times the oh House my. deferred to the Senate. The Senate deferred only 481 times. So it was about double on the House side. That's because they had so many good proposals, and the Democrats insisted, no, we're not going to buy that, so you have to recede. And that's what happened. Well, anyway, the, the CDO uh, provision did not make it through. However, there is something in there that could have a similar effect. It cuts the pay grade of officers and people who work in offices that promote uh, DEI, and it limited the pay grade to GS-10. That's about $70,000. Well, most diversity officers in private industry make double that. So these are high-priced people. So if you say you're only going to make $70,000, that may say, well, I don't want that job. Uh, mm-hmm. Private industry is cutting a lot of these jobs. So, But that's an indirect way. It would have been better to just get rid of that chief diversity officer. They also tried to sunset something called the Defense Advisory Committee on Diversity and Inclusion, DACADI. This is a power base in the Pentagon, and all they do is promote diversity, equity, and inclusion-type programs. So you look at their web page, that's what it's all about. Uh, this should never have got it, gotten started, and Congress should have, should have abolished it. But mm-hmm. there it is, and they're supposed to make a report to Congress come May. So that's unfinished business. Uh, we, we highlighted our article about this is all about the good, the bad, and the incomplete. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of incomplete measures here. Um, I've mentioned the parents' rights as it was a step in the right direction on the environmental climate change thing. Yes. The House got into the bill something that says the DOD can't go off and buy 50,000 electric vehicles, which is what they're talking about. Uh, not the tanks, not yet, uh, but electric vehicles used by the Department of Defense. But the, the House got a measure in there saying, but you have to show you have the infrastructure. That means the recharging facilities for all those EVs. But even that is only a half step in the right direction, because why do we have to have EVs? They're more expensive. They are not as reliable. People don't want to buy them. Why should the Department of Defense be buying them? Mm-hmm. Well, because it's Biden's agenda. That's why. So uh, that's an issue that's a new one, relatively new one for us. But uh, we've been tracking it, and uh, the House did try to uh, to do the right thing. There was a measure to eliminate the drag shows to, to codify the elimination of drag shows and the drag queen story hours. Now, those were abolished by Secretary Austin when uh, Matt Gates cornered him at a hearing. You may recall that. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know we had drag queens on military bases, and frankly, I doubted that. But anyway, um, let's say he never heard of it before Matt Gates gave him a whole file folder full of stories about these drag queens. Uh, to his credit, Austin did make good on his word to abolish them last June, okay? But why not codify what that policy is? Mm-hmm. The administration came out against that amendment, and it did not get into the law. So what is the problem here? You know, sexualized performances for adults or children, they're, they're equally wrong, perhaps more so with children. Mm-hmm. But that was an issue that Congress did try to, uh, to address, but they, they didn't quite get that through. There was also one about displays of unapproved flags 
that would be the LGBT type flags and BLM or you know some of these flags. Um, that one uh, was removed. What they should have done, um, I think it says that they it has to be approved at the discretion of the military chain of command, but they need to take that a step further and say that, uh, you know, these LGBT pride celebrations have gotten out of hand. Uh, you remember what happened on the on the lawn of the White House last year. Yes. Uh, with, the, with the transgender, um, I don't know what they were, exhibitionists. Okay. That's, that's the perfect <laughs> that word, yes. Really, really offended a lot of people, and the flags were taking precedent over the American flag, which was a violation of protocol. So that kind of thing requires more work in the coming year. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, again, I, I really appreciate the House members. Everybody should say, look, took a baby step. you got to go further. Yes. Uh, we've got to do more in 24. And, of course, the next president will be able to get rid of a lot of these policies by executive order. You've given us a big hint as to the work that's laid out before the Center for Military Readiness in 2024. I'm so thankful you come and visit on a regular basis so you can keep us surprised. You go to the link, friends. You follow the work of CMR. Thank you, Elaine. Back after this, friends. Christians are called to go into the marketplace of ideas. Throughout history, men and women of God have been thought leaders, innovators, and forces for good. We want this program to continue in that bold tradition. Join me by becoming a partial partner. Your monthly gift will make a difference as we help Christians take a bold stand in the marketplace of ideas. Call today, 877-JANET-58, or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. If I were to say to you an illuminated Bible, would you know what that is? Craig and I are lovers of books, as you probably deduce by now, and it's my joy to discover pages of old manuscripts. I mean, from the 1100s, the 1200s, 1300s, in obscure bookstores around the globe, by the way, where they might not have the Bible in its entirety, but they might have one page with an illustration. And someone did this gorgeous piece by hand, whoever the scribe was who was writing it, did these beautiful illustrations. And I'm quite sure they captured the reader's attention then, just as it's capturing my attention now. But what if you could look at an illuminated Bible and it was all about Jesus, that if you stopped and realized that from Genesis to Revelation, this book doesn't contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God, and it is all about Jesus. And you were gifted as an artist, and you could paint a representative of some messianic theme in every single book of the Bible and use that as the front page of each of the 66 books. Now, just let that sink into your imagination for a minute. What would that look like? And how would that bless you as a reader of God's Word? Well, there is such a thing. It's called the Illuminated Messiah Bible. It's a King James version of the Bible, and it contains 66 portraits of Jesus. And I know this is radio, and I always love to say that in radio, unlike an artist who works with paint, we work with sound. So I am limited to painting on the canvas of your mind as to what this Bible looks like. But I'm going to help you because I've got a bunch of links on my information page where you can take a look at some of these stunning drawings, and stunning they are. But I want to introduce you to the man behind the Bible. His name is Tim Gagneau. He is an artist, award-winning. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's an instructor. He has performed and exhibited in galleries and churches and conferences. He got a degree in theology from the Christian Life School of Theology in Columbus, Georgia. Then he went on to get a master's in fine art, focusing on painting, from the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Along the way, he served our country, and we thank him for that as an Air Force vet. 
And so he serves with the Patriot Art Foundation, and that's about teaching vets to share their stories through the arts. He serves on the board and teaches online uh, for classes for VA hospitals and is the host of the Patriot Arts podcast, by the way. So he joins us today to talk about this breathtaking Bible. Tim, the warmest of welcomes. Again, my challenge is I cannot show people these pictures, but we're going to talk about them nonetheless. But I have to ask you this. If I look at your Pilgrim's Progress, you started getting the theology degree before you fine-tuned the artistic part of you. So that raises an interesting question about your journey. At what point did you realize that God had made you, among other things, a creator in the arts? Well, first of all, thank you for such an amazing intro. Wow, I'm just blown away by that. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Um, So for me, I've always been an artist. Uh, I was actually an artist in the the Air Force. I was a graphic specialist, and uh, my job was to design weapon systems and different things like that uh, for Mm. the 84th Test Squadron. Wow. And so I had a quite a quite a unique job uh, while I was in there. I was a young airman, so I did a lot of mowing of lawns and uh, making of copies, though at the same time. <laughs> but so uh, while oh, go ahead. No, no, please, you. Uh, while I was in the military, uh, you know, I mean, I was a young man, nineteen years old. Um, I I was I had just come to the faith, and here I am, this young airman. I'm very naive. I'm from a just an insanely small, tiny town in northern New Hampshire. And I was stationed at Tyndall Air Force Base here in Panama City Beach, Florida. And I met my flight commander, uh, Captain Mark Hayes. And uh, and then there was another gentleman, uh, Chaplain Bruce Ewing. And these two gentlemen, they, they saw something in me and they encouraged my art and my faith. And they taught me very quickly that God had a plan for my art. And that God could use that and that God put that in me for a reason. And uh, they are two of probably the biggest reasons why I'm here today talking with you. Wow. But for your mentorship, do you think that you ever saw that you could serve the Lord through art or was that just something you would do on the side? Because a lot of people, first of all, it doesn't surprise me that there are creative people like you. We have a creator and it makes perfect sense that a creator would design so many of his children to be creative. It's a reflection of who he is. But very often, people who are creative by God's design struggle with, well, how do I play that out in my life? How do I make a living? How do I honor and serve God by doing that? Had you thought about using your art as a way of honoring God before they had talked to you? A little bit. You know, I, I think that the one thing that I've known my whole life is that God put me on this earth to be an artist. I, mm. I always instinctively knew that. And, you know, of course, that's developed. Now I realize my creator created me to create. And for me, that when I'm at the easel and I'm working and I'm painting, that's a really powerful devotional time with with my father with my maker. I'm painting. I'm doing exactly what he put me on this earth to do. Mm. And so for me, it's, it doesn't matter if I'm painting a portrait of Christ or if I'm painting two polar bears in a snowstorm, which by the way is actually on my easel right now. It doesn't, (laughs) I know it doesn't matter because I don't create for God. I create with God. It's a collaborative Mm. effort between me and my creator. Well, Oh, I love to hear you talk like that. And, you know, sometimes when you look at a sunset or you look at a bird and you think God is an artist. And I'm, and so, again, it doesn't surprise if, if we're made in his image, Imago Dei, 
He makes some of his children artists. And he does that, by the way, not only just so you can honor the Lord, but we can be blessed as well, which takes us to this illuminated Messiah Bible. What a, uh, let me just be transparent with you, brother. What a monster project. Did you do a lot of thinking and praying and considering what it was going to cost you to do this? Because, well, well, let me ask about the approach that you were going to do. First of all, the size of the project. And second of all, to have one of these artistic renditions of a messianic theme in front of each of the 66 books. Tell me how you came up with that idea. Uh, well, this is a five-year project. Uh, mm. I've been working on this for five years. Now, mind you, I was painting a lot of other things in between that, teaching courses and different things like that. But uh, this was a five-year devotional for me, you know, contemplating the Messiah. My favorite, if you want to see me nerd out in a Bible study, it's the Messianic <laughs> prophecies in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Christ in the New. I just, that that's where I'm going to nerd out. And it's my favorite thing to study. And so because I'm an artist, I think visually, I communicate visually. So I don't, when I'm reading the Bible, I don't see words on a page. I see the images flashing before me. Mm. And so, you know, every artist that has ever artist in the history of artists, they get to a point and they're like, I've got to paint that. I've got to paint that. And so this developed very quickly through years of Bible studying on Messianic passages that I've got to get this out of my head or I'm just going to lose my mind. And so I started painting. I started studying illuminations and that art form, that very ancient art form. And over time, I just started to, you know, I just started to work it out. And eventually the hook came. And that was that all of these 66 passages that I've chosen to illuminate and chose to paint, they all lead us to the cross. And so I wanted to make each one of these paintings while remaining an individual painting that you could look at and admire, they would all combine together and form in the art world what we call a polyptych image, a, a giant image made out of many smaller images. And in this case, the 66 paintings combine together and they form a 12-foot cross mm. revealing a hidden portrait of the crucified Christ. Unbelievable. And by the way, there's a picture of it on my information page, friends, for you to see it. And you can click on through to a link so you can see these stunning uh, drawings that Tim has done. Tim, let me just talk about, there's a million questions I want to ask you. So when this is all put together, as I understand it, it's 12 feet tall by nine feet wide. So as you're painting, not only the tiny little parts of every picture, there's several things that came to my mind as I was pouring through the Bible. Number one, boy, does Tim know the word. Because you have to pick something that thematically is representative of the book, number one. Number two, I don't know if you understood this when you were doing it. Yeah, I love the way you said you love to nerd out when you talk about the Messianic passages. There is, I hope this remains a small contained fire, but there is a robust debate within the church that somehow there are no Messianic passages in the Old Testament. And that's, that's to me, I, I, I am, to use an old-fashioned word, I'm gobsmacked about that because from the beginning to the end, Jesus is present throughout the word. But I don't know. I mean, if you're going to disconnect, I guess, the New Testament from the Old Testament, you can pretend that Jesus isn't referenced at all in the first part of the Bible, which is the Old Testament. But then there's the pragmatic part. When you make this all together and you put all of these pieces together, how in the world, when you're making something for the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, are you able to also say, now this is going to be this part of Jesus's body when he's hanging on the cross, which is when I put these 66 pictures together. Now, you're not only going to see the individual pictures, but you're going to see the giant picture of Christ on the cross. 
that's not art alone. That's got to be math. How do you figure all of that out? Well, first of all, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> and it, it was a doozy. So the first thing I did was I had to find a model. So I found, uh, you know, the Lord just led me to the perfect model. And I was like, oh, there, there he is. There he is. Convinced him to pose uh, for, for all the portraits for Christ. And uh, I had a lot of photo references. And so I took all the 66 panels and I made a wall and I put the cross together on the wall. And then I painted the portrait of the crucified Christ on those. And then I was able to take that down and that took a few months. And then once I took that down, I was able to look and say, okay, this panel his, is his kneecap. Okay, this is going to be um, First Chronicles. So what is that Messianic passage about? And then I could paint that and then think about how can I hide this painting and also hide his kneecap in there. Wow. So that's really how the process went. A little bit at a time, over and over again. But, oh, I, we are the beneficiaries of five years of your work, Tim. I cannot thank you enough. I'm so glad I have another segment with you. The book is called The Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus. It is absolutely stunning. It's painted by a man who loves God's word, who understands the continuity of the messianic message, and who really wants people to recognize Jesus in the word. It's stunning. You'll just have to take my word for it, but then go to the information page so that you can realize what an absolutely beautiful, beautiful Bible this is. The Illuminated Messiah Bible, 66 Portraits of Jesus. And so what our guest, Tim Gagno, has done as an award-winning artist, author, speaker, instructor, someone who knows and loves the Word of God, what he's done is he's put pictures that represent the one of the Messianic themes in each of the books. So in other words, there's 66 different pictures, all of them moving forward, the Messianic theme that is there throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But when you put all of these 66 pictures together, you have a piece of art that's 12 feet tall, nine feet wide. And while you see all of the 66 different plates that are used at the beginning of each chapter of the Bible, there you stand back and you see Christ on the cross. So Tim, this raises again a whole bunch of questions. Number one, because of the size of this, where are the originals right now? Where is this piece of art? Uh, the originals are actually uh, right behind me in a box <laughs> at this stage. So the cool thing about this is that to celebrate this new Bible, we take all of the original art plus the 12-foot cross, and we take it on a traveling art exhibit to churches oh, everywhere. Wow. Wow. And so uh, we were just in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, had a great exhibit there at uh, First Baptist Church Pleasant Grove. And it was just spectacular to talk about this project, talk about the Word of God. You know, the art that glorifies God is a very ancient tradition. Obviously, yes. illuminated manuscripts go back to the ninth century with the Book of Kells. But the tradition actually goes even further back, all the way to the Babylonian captivity where the ancient Jews were contemplating Exodus 15, 2, where it talks about exalting God. Mm. And they interpreted that word to be, I will exalt God by creating beautiful things. And they created the uh, Hebrew tradition called Hidur Mitzvah, which means the beautification of the Torah. 
the beautification of the word. And so making the Bible beautiful, making anything beautiful is a way to glorify God. And that's what we do. We take this art to churches, we put it on display, and we all glorify the word of God and Jesus, our Messiah, together. Wow. You know, Tim, you clearly not just have a love for God's word, but I think you have a very special love for God's chosen people as well. And I was thinking for our Jewish friends who don't yet know that Yeshua is the promised and much anticipated Messiah, this Bible would be absolutely fabulous to begin to talk about Jesus's presence, even in the Tanakh, all the way through before you get to the New Testament. And maybe the Lord would just bless those kinds of conversations and it would open a door for further examination so that some of our Jewish friends might recognize that all of that foretelling in the Old Testament is made manifest in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ, which is absolutely fabulous. Um, do you, what kind of feedback? You talked about going to the church. I'm sure that people are, are very inspired when they see this collectively as a traveling art display. But talk to me about the feedback you're getting from people who are reading the Bible. How does it change or impact them as they open up the Word of God? They have really been letting us know how just it's been touching their hearts. You know, art is a very primal way of communicating. It, it gets beyond words, and it hits you on a primal, emotional, deep level. And there are some things that just Words can be inadequate sometimes. And so this art has been touching people in very deep ways. The biggest thing is just that discovering who Jesus is and mm -hmm. how he goes from Genesis to Revelation, that he is our promised Messiah that is going to restore the breach between God and man and destroy the works of the devil. And when they see that, it, it, it it kind of unlocks something in their faith. And, and it's really been beautiful to see how people are, are experiencing that and talking to us about that, that they're really getting what it means. The word Messiah means, you know, you, a lot of people think, you know, Jesus Christ, Oh, Christ is his last name. They don't understand. That's just, that's just, you know, the Messiah. It's the word Messiah. It means the anointed one from yes. God. It's yes. the one that was promised all the way back right after the thing that gets me excited is the very first, messianic prophecy or the first messianic passage is Genesis 3.15. It's right after the fall, God promises a Messiah is going to come and, and, and restore everything. Mm. And so when they see that here laid out in both the word of God and the imagery, the narrative paintings, it, it really does unlock something in people's faith. And it's wow. beautiful to see. Oh, that's fabulous. You know, even though you were young when you were serving in the Air Force, your love of our men and women in uniform has never left clearly by all the work that you do for the VA hospitals and also the host of the Patriotic Arts podcast. But I'd love to learn more about the Patriot Art Foundation, uh, where vets are told that they can tell their story through the arts. Boy, the stories you might be able to tell and the things you must have seen. Share some of that with me. Oh, it, it really is my heart. It, I, a matter of fact, today, I just, before I, I started speaking with you, I ended uh, our, our third drawing class with uh, one of the VA hospitals. And uh, we've been doing a drawing class now for three weeks out of seven. And so I've just finished that. It's such a joy. Uh, the Patriot Art Foundation was founded by a, a world-renowned watercolorist and portrait artist, Mary White. And she is just a spectacular woman. And she's created this organization to help 
veterans be able to tell their stories and to get it out. And when we go and we see how these veterans can use that art to express themselves and tell their story, as I said before, art is a primal way of communication. And sometimes the things that these veterans go through, they can't express it verbally. Yes, yes. But through art, they're able to get that pain, that anguish, that everything out in beautiful ways. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Tim, this has gone far too quickly. One last word, because you're talking to people literally from Guam to the Cayman Islands, and we thank the Lord for this large footprint. And among those listening have to be people who are aspiring artists themselves, but struggled with knowing how they can serve the Lord through art. 30 seconds. What do you say to them as an encourager? God means you to be an artist, and it's your moral responsibility to him to try to be the best artist you can be. So practice, 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 and remember that you don't paint for God, you paint with God and connect with your creator. What a word to end on. Tim, thank you so much. I I have to tell you how grateful I am that I have a copy of the Illuminated Messiah Bible. Before I start a chapter, I just stop and recognize that this is God's Word, and Jesus is present in the midst of these words as well. And because of your artistic work, we're reminded of that in such a powerful and beautiful way. May the Lord continue to fling open doors of opportunities for you as you honor Him through your art. Thank you, friends, for joining us. We'll see you next time.